Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Well, howdy! Welcome to Herb's Podcast Christmas Trees. What can I do for you, son? Well, I'm looking for a podcast Christmas tree for our show. What do you have? Oh, we got some nice new finger ones right here. Uh, yeah. Got anything more traditional? Well, let me see. about this? But puny, isn't it? Well, put some lights on, some tinsel. Why, it'll be as pretty as a milkmaid's knee. Okay, okay. I'll take it. Pleasure to do business with you, son. By the way, what's your podcast? Ahem. Live from the internet. Gaming on the Frontier. Hi, this is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your gaming podcast where we get to pretend we're Santa's elves, answering questions from you, our listening public. Oh, this mailbag's getting heavy. It's easier lifting alternators. But Santa, I've already put in a 13-hour shift. Oh, oh, oh. You can sleep after Christmas. There is no overtime at the North Pole. There's just time and not enough of it. I, I figured, you know, they'd have to have an awful lot of automation at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's more like, you know, the Jetsons where they're just flying. Things are flying around and stuff. And birds are, you know, or maybe they've got like, you know, Harry Potter with owls just picking up boxes yeah, and yeah. running off with them and stuff, you know, because, you know, obviously there's just... You know, no, you know, no possible way to keep up with the, you know, all the multitude of things that people ask for for their Christmas. Anyways, welcome to Gaming on the Frontier. This week is our Christmas episode. And of course, you know that because it's being released on that week. Because of the way we're recording some of our episodes, you people may not know who Jonathan is. Uh, yeah. Jonathan is our newest host, and the last time we had him on, we didn't bother to ask him anything about himself. <laughs> Just kind of threw me at the wolf and said, hey. It was a sink or swim thing. Sorry about that, Jonathan. Yeah, <laughs> bad. But we didn't give him a chance to introduce himself. So, um, Jonathan, why don't you tell, you, tell everybody about yourself and why you're, th- uh, why you're happy to be on the podcast. My name's Jonathan. I've been gaming for over 25 years. I figured that out. I uh, started off with a little bit of D&D, but uh, Bruce here kind of drew me into Bureau 13 at a, uh, I think it was an Atlanta Fantasy Fair, actually. <laughs> and so young teenage self kind of got st- stuck into Bureau 13 and then Fringeworthy after that and pretty much stuck with it throughout my rest of my high school and college days. Um, and then after college, I went on and with a couple of my friends bought a live action role playing game company called Handmade Games where oh, wow. I was the yeah I was the artistic director for uh our game Dark Confrontation which ran at DragonCon pretty much every year until we kind of went on a indefinite hiatus uh, a few years back 
Jonathan, I never knew this. This is amazing. Uh, this is all news to me about being uh, being part of handmade games. Well, that's great because we haven't had anybody who's really been involved in live action role playing on the podcast, you know, for quite a while. I think Amber was the last person who really was into live action, wasn't it? I'm not sure if Amber did LARP. I mean, obviously, we had uh, Jess Hartley on, and of course, you know, she was neck high right, and But she was a guest. Right. Yeah. Amber, I don't remember her ever saying she LARPed. So, you know, this is this is something we really haven't had before, so that's great. And we like that because we want to have, we want to bring all the most, you know, uh, at least, you know, the widest perspectives, not always the freshest. Though, fr- frankly, with 25 years of experience, Jonathan is still the junior member of this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Well, Josie uh, still has only been gaming for about 10, so it's... Well, just, yeah, but she... Once she comes back, she will she she will re, you know re, uh, I don't know what is it regain uh, re, uh, her reclaim the title reclaim her title yes okay so anyways uh, we want to th- first of all we want to hope everybody had a great year uh, we've been trying very hard to give you great content and we hope that you have enjoyed that. Uh, we are coming up on our 500th episode, so be sure to be listening for that. That's going to be in the middle of January. Pay attention to these numbers because that's you know going to be a big number for us. And hopefully we're going and we may even be streaming that one Ooh, yeah. uh, if I can get my act together on getting the streaming going. So you guys might be able to participate live on that episode. So and I'm very grateful for that because you know we. You know, the, one of the big problems that all podcasters have is that most people don't actually post any response, any kind of you know, letting us know how we're doing. Uh, we we kind of do this in a vacuum. And all we really know is the more of you people that download our podcast and, and listen to it on, on, on the web and everything else, we assume that you're liking what we do. <laughs> okay. But that's not, you know, it's always a kind of, I don't know, we always have a little, you know, thing in the back of our heads going you know are they laughing at us and st- are they laughing with us yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyways movie. yeah well we're definitely a b movie here <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you know i i always like the you know to me the best b movies are the ones that are cheesy funny you know with lots of gratuitous nudity and 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 and, and blood and gore and uh and, and, and especially, you know, kind of ones that I used to show on um, on the double feature at the drive-in. Oh, yeah. And aren't ashamed of it. When I was 16 years old, we went to see a double feature. It was um, Cannibal Girls and I Eat Your Meat. We always thought that was a really strange combination. No, no. Goes together pretty well, actually. Yeah, kind of thematic, actually. I mean, it's not my cup of tea, but, you know, it does work. Yeah. I and, and, and my best friend uh, at the time, definitely not best friend forever, but uh, well, we drove out to see that, and it was, uh, a, it was quite a show. <laughs> it, was, it was just as you would have expected it to be, you know, lots of filming in the Philippines. And you, uh, anybody who's, There's a great, uh, on Netflix, there's a great uh, documentary about the Philippine action-slash-horror film industry that took place during the uh, 90s and it is a revelation to watch i mean just you know how how many crazy things were going on there where 
you know, just just as one thing where they said, okay, we have an action scene today, and we're uh, you know we're going to have helicopters and all this stuff, and then they get to the next morning and says, what do you mean the the, the government sent all our helicopters off to fight the insurgents because they 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 had people that were revolting against the government. Sometimes they had to bribe the, some official you know a, a official to make sure that those helicopters arrived like they were supposed to. So, you know, whenever you saw these movies and, and the helicopter, all of a sudden it was like, it was feast or famine. Either it was one helicopter and it seemed to be doing everything or you barely saw it, or it seemed like there was like 20 helicopters suddenly in the movie and you're like, what kind of budget did they have? They didn't have any budget. Just, you know, somebody bribed somebody and all of a sudden 20 helicopters showed up. Wow. It was a very strange time, and and they had their uh, they had a James Bond character that was a midget and uh, or little person if that's your preference, um, and he was a he was a huge star. He basically he played it straight. He was like like a I mean he wasn't James Bond, but he was like a James Bond character. He got all the girls. He beat up all the guys, he drove all the fast cars, he drank, was was the hard drinking, the whole thing. He just he did it all completely straight. They 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 did the movies completely straight and it was just he was a huge star in the Philippines and and unfortunately the guy because he he was, you know, uh, had his physical issues, he died like at 35 and they're all said, you know, He's, he died because his heart was too big for his body. I'm I'm kind of reminded of the sidekick of Kid Rock, Joe C. Okay. And he passed away relatively early, and I think it was due to, um, oh, God, it's the same thing they said Bruce Lee died of. Cerebral edema. Because parts of his body were growing, I guess the brain grew, and obviously his skull didn't, and that's how he passed away. Mm. Yeah. So our episode this uh, um, um, this year, uh, since we've spent ten years trying doing every possible iteration of Santa Claus, you know, on on alternate worlds and different traditions for uh, yep. for Christmas and stuff, we thought we'd go very basic this year and just simply say, let's ask a couple, you know, let's just pool our knowledge together and talk about what would be you know, what's the best choices for Christmas presents to receive or give to other people as far as RPGs are concerned. So, as normal, we have a list. No, no, we have to name it correctly, the patented Bruce Shepard outline. <laughs> and and they don't have to be in any particular order. I'm just going to call out a host and say, what do you think about this? And, and, we're, and we're just going to uh, round robin and, of course, jump in on everybody else's ideas. So, Trav... What do you think is the best world-building RPG or tool? Oh, oh, hands down, what I have gotten the most use out of, and I've mentioned this before on previous podcasts, it would be the Second World Source book by Stephen Palmer Peterson, and it's it allows you to run multi-genre games and also to plot out the course of the tech level. So if you want to plot out, okay, what rules of technology and what rules of magic work in your particular campaign world, there's a flow chart. And you can sit there and do hard blocks on this chart saying, okay, I don't want expert chemistry, which means you're not going to get things like plastics, Kevlar, 
So that means if you go to this world and you're, let's say, a modern-day cop, you know, the whole kind of Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court type thing, and the expert chemistry is blocked, well, the Kevlar vest that you were wearing is going to start disintegrating by about a week. It's just going to fall apart because the, excuse me, synthetic chemicals that make this garment are not supported by the laws of nature in this world. And you could plot this out. And also with how the Second World Sourcebook works is you can sit there and plot multi-genre gaming where, okay, over here I have a fantasy world. Over here I have, oh, let's say, cyberpunk. And all of a sudden my wizards from this fantasy world get shunted into this cyberpunk world. You can plot out all this type of stuff with the Second World Sourcebook, and it even has a home setting that Peterson made. And, of course, this is the setting that I linked with Bureau 13 because of his open fiction license. So I have found that, as far as a multi-genre world-building tool, to be indispensable to the point where I severely have to take my book together to keep it together. I've used it that much. Mm. All right. So it, it provides a, a flow chart of how to to build a world and over a campaign. Well, as far as how technology and magic works, yeah. I mean, there are other rules like societal and all that. That's your own. But as I found it helpful to plot out just what inventions work, what doesn't work, what hasn't been plotted yet. And just you oh. can plot all that out. And it, 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 it's been indispensable. Okay, so it's almost kind of like, like a... a provide you like a campaign tech tree like okay if we don't have this then these yes and and then the other disciplines don't work right all right okay expert chemistry you can't and let's say if you don't have what is it expert chemistry and precision machinery no automatic weapons oh yeah i think i i think i show i may have sent you the the pdf i mean just you know so yeah you you mentioned it before and and yes i think it's an excellent tool because uh, it, it really follows the idea that that you know it's not railroading time until it's railroading time. So if you're you know e- even if you have like one piece of it, you say, well, it's they they could have built steam engines back in you know in in, in the Roman times, but they didn't have the theory, so you know they didn't understand you know. Uh, oh no, yeah, folks, it's been found out that the Roman Empire had the preliminary plans for a steam engine. Problem is that whole thing about the failing government, you know, kind of screwed that over. What 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 did I say that oh yeah. Uh by AD one thousand it had the Roman Empire not in, not fallen, they would have been in space. They they May. used that out. Yeah. Well, yeah, if if everything else accelerated the same thing, you know. Right, but generally they would have said by then they would have already been in space because they had the rudimentary plans for effectively a steam engine. It's just, you know, Nero was too busy fiddling his Rome burn. Uh, well, what we find, especially if you, like, watch um, shows like uh, James Burke's, uh, which is now pretty old, but um, Connections and things like that, you find that all kinds of unlikely things come together to actually um, cause technologies to come into existence that are then used by somebody else in unexpected ways to actually cause us to move forward in our creative um, uh, 
are, of, of, of new technologies. And, and uh, right now we're seeing a lot of that happen in the area of, of, um, uh, of alternate energy sources and things like that because instead of just being a couple of people working on it in their you know, in a couple of universities on grants, suddenly we're seeing like, you know, hundreds, even thousands of researchers. Corporations, you know, dumping billions of dollars into finding this now. Yeah. Right. But you also have, you know, uh, thousands of grad students who are basically, you know, being allowed to make these things their their projects. Yeah, yeah. And and therefore, you know, they're they're graduate projects and what they what they come up with are then grabbed up by these corporations and exploited to create these new products and, and sometimes revolutionary technologies. One person, unless they're, you know, I mean, even you, know, you look at Da Vinci and we say, look at all the things he invented. Well, he didn't actually invent any of them. He drew make drawings, but most of them weren't a practical thing, unless, of course, you, you know, believe some of the television shows that came hmm. out. Well, no, they were even saying that he was inventing things that, I mean, technically they said he invented something akin to a mecca. Now, I haven't seen these plans, but still, it's like the fact that he even thought of them. I mean, calling him a visionary would be an understatement. Right. Well, in the same, it's just the same way that you talk about Vern. Vern was a visionary too, with some of the ideas he had. So, uh, but I'm just saying though, is is that uh, you know, since they never made practical models of what they had because they were writers or sculptors or whatever, and they weren't actually scientists, you know, it, a lot of these things just kind of lay around for hundreds of years until somebody suddenly said, you know, I could actually do that. And someone who has the technical knowledge necessary to achieve it, and then all of a sudden it comes into existence. You know, I, I like the, this this particular supplement because it basically says if you don't have this, then you won't have that, and it's it allows you to create these really interesting uh, mixes of technology and sometimes magic if you go the fantasy route as well. And sometimes they can substitute for each other because, like, if you have someone who has all this fire-shaping ability like they had in Avatar, The Last Airbender, you actually can replace uh, some of the chemical work that was done with this kind of, of, of thing because they can provide, you know, different levels of heat. They can apply it in different ways, and so you can end up getting, you know, heat distillation and other things like that that you wouldn't be able to do without a lot of different types of technology. Eberron, that, that was the whole point of the Eberron setting from Wizards of the Coast, that they mimicked all the stuff that you could do with tech with magic. You didn't have telegraphs. You had sending stones. Um you could capture an elemental and use it to power a vehicle. And you had everything from trains to airships to sea ships because you captured just the right type of elemental. You captured an air elemental and you had the lightning rail. You captured a fire air elemental and you had the sky ships. You captured a water elemental and you had the sea ships that navigated from Sharn to Zendrick. So, yeah, it, it all, what I call arcane punk. And possibly could go over land. Oh, yeah, they had a, a, a tumbler where it was like a giant boulder that it opened up like a clamshell. You climbed inside, and then you just phased through Earth. Well, what I was saying is if you have a water elemental, you can actually provide a layer of water under your ship, and your ship can move over land as well. Yeah, that, that's what the, the, the sea ships did. The Yeah, they basically just pushed the boat made of sore wood, which S-O-A-R, and it 
was like half the weight, so it was easier to push through the seas. But you could also push it over land, is what I'm saying, because the the, the element. Well, for that, then they used the Earth Elementor. They made the lightning rail. Okay, that was a choice the writers made. I'm just saying is conceptually, if you have a water elemental that's controlling water, it could also force the water under the boat and and make it be able to flow over land as well. Okay, the roads would be muddy, but okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, you had this big warship and everyone's like, well, yeah, but their, their guns only can fire a mile and we're two miles in. What can they do? And all of a sudden you see the warship sliding down Main Street. <laughs> you know that that makes me think of the um I, and I feel bad because I can't remember the author uh, or the title but there was a short story about basically he, modern day earth and I think this was maybe 1980s or 70s uh modern day earth getting invaded by aliens mm-hmm. piloting wooden ships um launching fighters out of these ships made out of like balsa wood and leather wings uh-huh. uh carrying muskets Right. And, of course, these aliens get trounced by the, the modern, again, modern-age human uh, military. And it over, like, months or years of interrogating the aliens, it comes to find out that, yeah, faster than light travel is really freaking easy. We just never learned it. Yeah, we never figured it out. The culture that's basically taken over the stars, you know, is, is essentially a medieval culture mm. with, like, you know, no, nothing better than the, the, the crossbow Probably not even a trebuchet, uh, just a catapult. Catapult, you know. Or I was just thinking about the one that throws the spears, uh, our arbalesque, ballista. Yeah, like a ballista and stuff like that. Uh, but nothing, you know, major. Certainly nothing that flies because you have ships that fly. But you know, something that basically has the maneuverability of a jet. They never had a reason to do it because they could just simply fly over top of any enemy and just drop rocks on them. Yeah. You know, and because everybody, no, because of course they're defeating people who haven't figured it out yet. You just, once you have faster than light travel, you just immediately start spreading out your empire as quickly as possible, defeating anybody who's in your way. And, uh, you know, hope that you don't run into anybody else who's as smart as you are. Yeah. You figured yeah. it out, you know. And if you do, probably, you know, you're going to end up with them, like, banging their ships together and trying to have boarding parties against, you know, <laughs> like like it, like they're on the high seas except yeah. they're floating. And still not, you know, but we, because we never figured it out, actually had to develop whole new technologies in order to fly and, and to do that kind of damage with bombs and, and everything else rather than just dropping big rocks you know, a couple miles in the air down to the ground. Our, our technology just blew them away. I love that story. I thought I always, I always said it was a great, great story, you know. I like the ending of it, too. It was with the, when the aliens realized, oh, wait, we just handed this technology to this vastly technologically superior foe. Oh, no. We're either on our way to, to liberate, the, you know, all their um, uh, subject colonies, or we're on our way to replacing <laughs> replace them take them over we've had a lot of fun with that in the various races and such in uh, fringeworthy and uh incursion over the years oh yeah <laughs> okay yeah so you really like that 
Yeah. Uh, and I, I agree. There's lots and lots of, of supplements out there, and I'm glad you like that. Now, in regards to like mapping software, because you know, ultimately, you know, though it's kind of fun to lay down a grid paper and go and draw out a map. When you start drawing like whole nations, it, it, it could be it could be tiresome. Though I, my first one I did, I did basically on on a, a big piece of particle board. Uh, but there is some some decent mapping software out there. Some of it is free. For example, Auto Realm is open source, and you can get it at autorealm.source.net, sourceforge.net, and you can use it to you know do all kinds of mapping to it. The ones that have been around a long time and and have gotten better, this is one of those things where it's kind of like if you like it, then it's good. Okay, like Campaign Cartographer Three. Draw plus X4, and of course, Fractal Mapper 8. And, and there's a, lots of, a bunch of other ones too. But uh, there are lots of uh, mapping software out there that you can use to do it. Uh, my favorite software was where I basically just drew this, I just drew lines all over the place and I made them thicker or thinner. And this software basically translated that into a map, basically where it was. It was uh, thicker, it was lower, and where it was thinner and, and lighter, uh, it made them higher. So I had mount, mountain ranges and, um, and and all kinds of things. And, and that, that created a 3D model for me to look at and then plan other things that I was going to do. Um, mm. and, and I really enjoyed that. That came with an actual modeling program. And it was like a, an add-on that came with it. It wasn't very good as far as being reliable and, or anything like that. But it did, you know, I was able to create a whole bunch of stuff on the ad hoc on the fly that way, and then just print it out and then work from there because it kind of gave me like, a, you know, it, it wasn't quite, but it was pretty close to you know the the the, the, the geo maps that you would get like uh, at, at the post office or you know at, at the library for showing elevations and such. All my worlds were very rugged because it was just too fun to make huge cliffs and stuff, you know, you know, huge spires all over the place. Hmm. That piece of software, however, has disappeared in the, in the, the, the dust of time. <laughs> I, I may still have a copy of it somewhere in, in, in the bottom of some box of, of, of gaming supplies, in, 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 but I, I, think it's, I think it's long gone. I, think I finally just said, you know, this was great, but, you know, I, I'm not using it, so off you go. And uh, but uh, I wish that they 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 made you know software really easy to do like this, where you could prototype your world real easy and then start filling in more and more. And I think that that's what Campaign Cartographer and a Fractal Mapper is supposed to do. Fractal Mapper's claim to fame is the fact that you can zoom in infinitely on it. So you you have the map at the, the top level, and then you say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to put a city here, and I'm going to zoom in on that city. And you just go zooming in further and further, and then you can start building buildings and stuff. What they didn't seem to have, at least in the past, maybe they do now, was the was an auto you know like auto generate a fantasy city. Man, that would that would have been great, you know, or auto generate a dungeon. So you could just go and put that here and there, but uh, I, I really don't know what all it has anymore to it. Like I said, I'm just going to take it. I'm, I'm looking at it right here on, uh, as we talk, and yeah, it doesn't mention anything about doing that sort of thing, other than um, you can create. Uh, you, it has a scripting interface that allows you to write VB script. So yeah, you could uh, if you're a really good programming, you know, in VB type stuff, you could do all kinds of crazy stuff, but. 
you know, as far as as far as being able to zoom in and out on your map, really good. Which is really important if you get into some more higher level campaigns, because at that point, all of a sudden, oh, we're flying now. Well, what does this world look like now that we're up at three miles <laughs> up in the air? Okay, before you were walking around in the trees and you only had to, could only see maybe a, a couple hundred feet around you at the most. Now you can see for miles and miles, and your GM's like, oh, um, hmm. <laughs> and this actually allowed you to zoom in and out with that kind of detail. Okay, yeah. Well, that's what I see the big advantage of Fractal Mapper. Um, so, every, like I say, everybody is going to have their preference. But that's those are two things that I really would like is, is, is the ability to prototype, but also have the ability to script in, you know, like say, I just want you just to build something that I can then go and modify. You got the streets in here. Okay, I'm going to connect these streets over here, erase these buildings, turn that into a square. And of course, if they really wanted to make it nice for me, then they could also put people in them. That that made more sense back in the day when there was D and D, and 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 everybody else was an also ran. So people would write software and stuff that they would just literally all D and D, and it just generate everything. What you're beginning to sound like is a fantasy version of Sim City. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, that would be great. And I I've seen mm. people use games like that. You know where they've. They've taken video, you know, like like game worlds, you know, their favorite game world on a video game, and literally run it as an RPG without telling anybody that they're doing it, or <laughs> stealing the maps out of their favorite RPG game and doing that too. Uh, I have a tendency to take maps from all kinds of different RPGs and you know kit bash them together and create really weird, you know, types of things. Uh, I've got stuff from. Faerun combined with stuff from from uh, Karen combined oh. with uh, um, Blackmore and all kinds of stuff because I just like this and then let's throw in some stuff from Tritac and and uh, Judges Guild. I mean, I used to do just pull stuff all over the place together, and so my players never knew what the heck they were going to run into because I I you know I never used a game world uh, until I got into 3.0. At which point, I think I did use um, uh, Faerun. Okay, that's the other habit. You need to have something that helps you, you know, create a world, but you also need to be able to uh, zoom in on the on the particular. And and software like this can really help you do that. Uh, let's see here. What's our next question? Why don't you pick one, Trap? Okay. Pick somebody to answer it. Okay, uh, Jonathan. We're going to try this. Mm -hmm. The best character generation supplement. When it comes to character generation, the one I find, and it's going to seem a little weird, but I like it, is um, the uh, Tri-Stat, I think it was called the Tri-Stat system from Guardians of Order for their oh, uh, yeah, series. Yeah, for, uh, like guy, Small Mouth. Mouth and um, Silver Age Sentinels, yeah. Yeah, pretty much all the, uh, especially all, like, all the anime licensed RPGs. Uh, it was, I mean, you could just tell it was heavily inspired by GURPS. It was that same kind of piecemeal point-by system of you have your stats, now you buy all your abilities piece by piece. But yeah. it was a lot, sim a lot more simple than GURPS, a lot easier to put together. Um, and because it was made for anime, you could, you might as well say it was for every genre. Yeah, anime, you can do every genre via anime. Yeah, oh no, I, I remember the the Slayers uh, RPG. I remember, of course, mm -hmm. Tenchi Universe. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, the BESM. They, yeah. they have what three different editions of yeah, it? Yeah, I think. Yeah, and Before that, they that went was OGL. Yeah, the big book and. Oh yeah. So then, yeah, you had all the, the options, and then if you didn't quite have the one you wanted from the particular anime, you could try and find the source book for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of fun with that because I, I mean, I, I put together, uh, you know, like Bureau Thirteen esque type uh, modern horror genres. Okay. Put together supernatural, um, far future stuff. It was really good for making any kind of character you wanted. Fairly simply. Really, the only thing you had to have was the the GM telling you what was or was not allowed. Okay, all right. I, I've seen a lot of character generated systems, both online games and offline games, and my still my preference for as far as fleshing out what a character is really like that goes beyond the stats and such has been uh, central casting. Oh God, yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah. Fantasy Modern Tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, way out of print, but uh, you can still get copies of it. And um, I'm surprised someone hasn't scanned it in and it's available somewhere, but maybe it has. Because what you would use, using simply like a, a D100 or a D10, you, you could randomize different aspects of your character. You know, I mean, not like are you tall or are you short, but more like origin. Yeah, what, what's your social level? What's the what's the deep dark secret in your family? Let let you pepper your character with, you know, random interesting pieces of information. I got I, I have a funny story with that. Um, uh, Jerry Gentry, uh, play tester for Bureau Thirteen. You may have you may have met him at Continuum. He ran the con suite. Longtime friend of mine, roommate. He used that, and basically he rolled up where the Queen of England bestowed his character with a chainsaw of knowledge. And I'm just sitting there, and I and I use central casting, and I'm just looking at him. I'm going, and there's always an exception to the rule how the system works. Just, yeah. <laughs> then, I, you know, I bust his chops. Well, I don't know how to do it. Well, gee, Jerry, why don't you dredge up that one character and get the chainsaw of knowledge to help you out? Shut up, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In every system there is, I mean, you should always try to create the most outlier character you can just to see where the limits of the system are. I mean, where does it break? I mean, I, I did that with play-in system. Oh, yeah, yeah. In most things, it seemed like it worked out pretty well, but where it was broken was in strength. Because without a whole lot of effort, I could create a starting character that had the ability to pick up a car. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you sit there and stack up on physical skills, if you just find the right skill program, oh, yeah, you can end up with, I think, human maximum in Palladium. And I've got a bookshelf full of Palladium stuff. Um, I think human max is 24. And if you build your character right, you could have a strength of 30. Which just obviously the GM is going to have to put the foot down and say, no, you're a normal, you're a spy. You can't be that strong and just, you know, <laughs> pick some new skill. Most people had stats around 10. Well, yeah, usually for that 3D6, 10 to 11 is the average. But you could get somebody up to 30, like, you know, using that system. So to me, you know, at that point, that's, the, and, and that, that system may not be broken. It just may be that you've got this really incredible character that's hard to believe, okay? Yeah. It may still work in the system. You know, there are systems out there that when you do that, the system breaks. 
where you end up with you know somebody attacking somebody with a roll one to fail and someone ha- is is dodging roll one to fail yeah and you end up spending the next hour trying to see who rolls the one first and that's the per- and, and the other person wins and uh, to me, that's a failure in the system when you get into that kind of a situation where you're literally fighting at a standstill. Now, if you want it that way and where you basically, uh, you know, people, you could literally keep somebody, you know, busy for the next hour by fighting them on an equal level. And you're just going backwards and forwards across the bridge and things like that. Meanwhile, the rest of the party is off doing the actual adventure and completing the task, you know, because the... The, the guy that should be stopping them is too busy fighting you on the bridge yeah. for the next hour. Okay, that's actually a win. But I haven't seen too many people saying that was the intent of that sort of thing. Usually it's like, well, we didn't really think about what would happen if somebody had really, really super high stats or skills in this area where they would be able to do really obnoxiously, ridiculously, you know, unbelievable they it would it would basically break re, whatever reality was in the game it would break like they say the spy aesthetic spy who who, who could bench lift a uh, a buick that sort of thing you'd have to have all his tuxes custom made yeah um yeah, yeah. Not, not only that but you know you know I, i'd hate to see i don't know the lifting belt this person probably has to wear all the time yeah yeah i don't know that just kind of makes me think of jaws from the 007 movies well, yeah, they had their unique characters that, for some reason, they were considered possibly low-level superhuman. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and, and the only time that Jaws in that show I actually felt went beyond the realm was when, at the end of the movie, you know, spoilers, <laughs> the, the um, a space station crash lands on the Earth, and he's fine. And so's yeah. the girl he's with, and together they break open the champagne and toast each other for surviving. <laughs> and I'm just saying, no, you should be dead. Yeah, but everyone loved that character so much that they they basically he had script immunity. Yeah, Richard Keel's Jaws. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the second time he'd been in too. Like they loved him so much that was his second movie. Oh no, I think it was third or fourth movie at that point. Oh wow. It, he really was in like a whole series of them. He just kept showing up. I think, yeah, the Roger Moore Bond was where he was, yeah. It was in the Roger Moore Bond. And after a while, he, he'd show up and, and Roger Moore would be just like, no, not him again. Not this again. Oh, come on. Yeah. Because every time he shows up, you know, he would just basically beat the crap out of, you know, uh, Roger Moore's Bond. Well, the thing that got me was where he bit through a suspension cable in a bridge. Yes, yes. That was a thing, even, and, and I remember, let's see, that was when I was preteen. Even then, I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was way over the top. He, yeah. he, he, in the first one, all he, all he was was this guy who had steel teeth, so he would assassinate people by ripping their throats out. Yeah. Lovely, lovely Christmas topic, folks. Thank mm-hmm. you for listening. Yeah, hey. <laughs> But uh, but later on, he he got more and more superhero uh, or super villainish, you know, to the point where it was you know, <laughs> the, the 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 super the super villain of the movie became kind of like a second second stringer compared to him. He never actually got killed off, so he could always show up in any future Bond movie, except of course they'd have a different person playing him. Oh yeah yeah. Yeah. That's my idea. Do you know about the fate system? 
I have heard of it. I've never gotten my hands on it. Okay. There's also the system that was used in, uh, well, I think it is still Fate. Uh, it, it was, um, but uh, I'm thinking of the mouse guard system, the one that was behind that. Uh, it was all based upon your relationship to other people. Actually, that yeah, that reminded me of the, um, I think, uh, the Cortex system had a similar thing because um, I got a hold of the um, the Leverage RPG, and part of character creation is you pick your best um, you pick your best stat, and the other players tell you what your second best stat is. They're basically forcing you to think outside the box when they do that. Mm-hmm. And when people, you know, in, in game systems that kind of do that, where they say, "Okay, so what's your relationship to this character?" First of all, it creates a bond you know, between your characters that is missing in a lot of games that are kind of like, well, my character shows up. Well, what have you got? I've got this character that nobody's ever seen before, and he's got all these weird powers and comes out of nowhere. He's like the monster of the week. Why are you here? And usually they don't have great backstories for these characters because they concentrate on making their character as unusual as possible. This, by these these games uh, that use generation systems that force you to make a relationship, a history of some kind with the other player characters that are there, at least one. It doesn't have to be everybody. Right. You know, a matter of fact, if it's everybody, then everybody has to know everybody. In the very first campaign I ever ran in D&D, I said, you all grew up in the same small mining town. Your, your parents basically gave themselves black lung in the mines in order to, for you to send you off to the various mentors who made you a fighter, you know, a, a, a cleric, a mage, you know, or whatever. So you have all known each other because you went through, you know, the basic schooling together, the churches, seeing each other in the marketplace. So you have this relationship to each other because before that, half the time people were like, okay, I killed this guy. And I'm like, why are you killing him? Because he's got stuff. Well, but he's a party member. I don't know him. I didn't see him before tonight. This is my first time with him. You know, I've got no loyalty to this character. So I said, okay, we're going to stop that. And so I did that to basically force these people to say, you know, if you kill him, you're going to have to explain to his his parents, you know, why their little boy, you know, why their little baby boy, who of course is now 25, you know, uh, you know, isn't coming home from the dungeon. Do you really want to anger Aunt Linda that much? Yeah. And I'm just reminded of the the line from MIB. Why did little Tiffany have to die? (laughs) (laughs) If you start your characters by thinking outside the box, then it's going to be good practice for when you actually get into the adventure where it will always cause you to think outside the box. Well, it just, it allows for buy-in. It's like, okay, why am I with this group? Well, this one character over here, our parents, you know, knew each other for years and just we parted ways as us, but my family knows his family. We may not be friends, but I at least know of him because my mom, you know, played, you know, my mom used to sit there and knit with his mom, you know. Right. Or we're brother-in-laws. My sister and his brother, you know, got married and, 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 and now we're, and we're stuck in each other's families now. Yeah, yeah. And when I just said, "Hey, I'm going to go explore the dungeon," they said, "Well, well, bring your bring your brother-in-law." You know, he says he he doesn't ain't got a job. He might as well go help you. <laughs> and you're like, really? And then you look at him, and you, well, then you look at him. If you don't like him, go fine. You're my you're my hireling slash bait. 
Yeah. And he goes, he says, you mean you're my hireling slash bait? <laughs> Just try to keep up. Just don't get in my way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> And you guys squabble, and everyone's like, you know, would you two, like, just go get a room together? Yeah. Uh, Stop squabbling like an old married couple. And they're like, no, oh, we're not married. It's our, you know, it's our siblings that are married. If they're brothers-in-law, then you might as well just do the whole film Step Brothers, where after a while, you know, you bring in <laughs> what's done to drum sets and everything. You know, we won't talk about that here. Yeah. See, uh, you know, my, my go-to for brothers-in-law is National Lampoon uh, uh, Christmas Vacation. Oh, dear God, yes. <laughs> yeah. Clark, it's a gift that keeps on giving every month of the year. Yeah. Yep, sure is. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, with that same kind of idea, I'm going to throw it back over to you, Trav, and I'm going to say, what's the best system for smashing genres together but still being able to game? Because we know that that uh, Jonathan just mentioned the tri-stat system. Oh, throwing genres together? I, 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 you're going to kind of know my answer, Bruce, considering you know my main engine. OGL. And you know that they have everything for everything. 3.0, 3.5, D20 Modern, Pathfinder, it's all compatible with each other. And just, if you look out there, and of course Pathfinder is still doing stuff, you can find any genre. Heck, right now, my Saturday game, I'm running a Bureau 13 game in the Star Trek Kelvin universe. I'm using Bureau 13 OGL plus the Prime Directive D20 modern stuff from Amarillo Design Bureau. So, yeah, I mean, your urban fantasy and all of a sudden, you know, Star Trek, all with the OGL rules. A little bit of tweaking between the D20 Modern Rules and the Pathfinder Rules. Well, remember, I, I I told you this, Bruce, I converted a second edition character to Pathfinder in 15 minutes because they have the second to third edition PDF they put out. 3 to 3.5 was a bunch of updates. Paizo put out a 3.5 to Pathfinder conversion. Yeah, I converted an elven character of Josie's in 15 minutes. She watched me. But yeah, as far as genres... Many of the, the game designers that have been in the OGL game now since 2000 are my age, late 30s or, or late 40s, early 50s. So if you look, you can find D20 um, Unbreakable, D20 Reboot, Transformers, Highlander. If you look, dig deep enough, you can find any genre, intellectual property, just... And just OGL, that that for me, you know, second world source book, smashing genres together. Your fantasy characters go to a cyberpunk world. So for me, yeah, OGL just works for multi-genre gaming. It just, it has. It, it's been just fail-safe for me for 10 plus years now. Right. Uh, well, I am, am in agreement with you on that because... Uh, when the D20 explosion happened oh, yeah. due to the fact that they they did something that nobody had ever done before which was to make you know make their system essentially available to be used by anybody who wanted to there was an explosion of product oh everybody and their grandmother was putting out supplements yeah right 
Now, you know, right. Sturgeon's rule says that 9% of everything is, is, is worthless, okay? But that still means, but considering how many thousands of supplements that came out, that 10% was still a sizable number of choice things. Oh, yeah. And, and the gamut, as you said, was everything from, from you know, a hard science, at least as close as they could get with D20. There was like three different superhero type things that they came out with, um, you know, all the way, you know, to, to the fantasy, to the cyberpunk, to the horror, to, you know, back to Boot Hill. It, it's a huge, huge spread. You could even, the book of deviant role play, <laughs> forget what it was called. Yeah, I, I know exactly, because I had that thought just as you were mentioning that. I was like, yeah, there was even erotica. Uh, yeah, the, the yeah. Thank you, Valar Project, for that one. Yeah, I have. <laughs> yeah. The point was is that it was supposed to actually be legit. I mean, you know, it wasn't they weren't like just writing erotica, you know, in in the universe. No, yeah, it was so you could actually have mature themes in your game. Yeah, what it was was Gwendolyn Kestrel decided she wanted to do this, and then it was just after Hasbro bought out Wizards of the Coast and absorbed it, they pulled. The purity clause. Well, we have children playing our games and buying our products, so we can't do this. So Gwen Kestrel made up the Ballard Project, her own imprint, to put this up. Right. But yeah, so that that's how that came out, and that's why it was just the one-shot thing, just so she could get that out. There were a number of role-playing games out there that were intentionally supposed to be cross-genre, who had you know interesting mechanics and, and setups to be able to do that. Torg was the first one that... Oh, yeah. They were the ones that were try, uh, trying to cross the issues about power levels and stuff because they had a logarithmic scale for all of their powers and resolutions and things. Um, but they And there's a new version of it that came out. I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but it's called Tur Torg Eternity, which is a follow-up to the one that we all remember. They have seven different invading cosmoses, so that means that in each of the areas where the, uh, a different cosmos's reality holds sway, there would be different things that would be going on in there. So uh, I'm not sure how they handle that. I don't have the book, but I'm just saying is that it's definitely something that would be worth checking out to see how they're doing the cross genre and how they're handling it. You know, the, in the original one, you were what was called a storm knight, and you had reality points or whatever else they called it, and that allowed you to make things that shouldn't work work in certain realities. Right. And it also you could use those same points, I think, also to give you a boost to let you do like you know, basically like Benny's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At least it was seriously taking on the idea of saying, you know, we're not just talking about the cowboy and Dracula, which is like, to me, when I first found out about it, I was like, really? <laughs> this is this isn't like a, a you know a, a pure English period piece. You've got this cowboy in this this horror story about a vampire in in in, in Edwardian England. You know, or or Elizabethan England, and it, it wasn't like you were just throwing together some weird things out of nowhere. You know, uh, like the Moor Robin Hood movie, Prince of Thieves, where you have a Moor in England, and of course, it never they never had a Moor before in any of the movies. You know, and and everyone was like, going, "Wait a second, there weren't any, there were," and, it, and it was like, "Well, yeah, there could have been, <laughs> but nobody ever thought about it." I mean, any any excuse to get Morgan Freeman in there. 
Tom Cruise in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> what? Whatever. You know. I'm just saying. You. You can always. You know. The, the fish out of water. He wasn't a fish out of water though. That was the thing. He was. He was the most competent person there. <laughs> you know. And which was kind of funny because you know here here you got you know the the hero who's trying very hard to become the hero because again it unfortunately it was a it was an origin story more than anything else. And uh, so Morgan Freeman falls into the mentor category. Um, but uh, I always think it's funny when, when the character that seems least likely to be the most competent character there is actually the most competent. I think in, in, as far as television uh, shows are concerned, uh, it would be Cato in The Green Hornet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because Bruce Lee played Cato. Oh, yeah. Enough said, yeah. Well, yeah, but the thing is, is that they didn't know what to do with him. I mean, basically, he was the Asian houseboy, uh, assistant, whatever, for this guy who, who was a superhero, but he was actually, who was also assistant district attorney, or the district attorney, I can't remember which one it was. Yeah. So he, he's supposed to go in and rescue him. And so he's supposed to run in and punch out a couple of guys and then go ahead and rescue the, the Green Hornet. That was his direction, okay? So he comes into the room. He does a straight kick upward. He literally leaps upward, kicks out the light in a hanging lamp 10 feet above his head, comes down, and basically scissor kicks two guys on the way down, knocking them out, and then he's, he looks around for anybody else to fight, and then he goes over and says, oh, and he just very gingerly and, and humbly <laughs> ties the Green Hornet, and he's just sitting there, Trying not to be jaw agape, and every <laughs> yeah, I this, heard that he was just mowing through the people, and just he's yelling, "Yeah, go, Cato, go!" And it's like, wait a minute, this is the sidekick, yeah, right. And, and then, and then, well, the movie was the same way with Seth Rogen, where yeah, well, they already knew it. The joke was out at that point. We all knew that Cato was better than the Green Hornet, right? Yeah, yeah. but yeah, it was a a, a a comic first, I think. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he was he he was as as tough as as he is in the show because they literally you know seeing Bruce Lee do those things inspired them to let him do more and more stuff so that that was a a, a case where you know uh, a character can can you know because of the cross genre that they were doing it just basically totally changed the direction in which the show was going yeah. And and really, by the end of it, he should have been his his equal. But of course, you know, that wasn't the the show wasn't you know they had rules. The yeah. characters, you know, he had to stay the the assistant to the Green Hornet, even though we kind of you know knew that Kata was probably the you know the the smartest guy in the room, <laughs> smartest and toughest. Yeah. Right. I would say check out Torg Eternity. It's available for $25, and if that's a little too high, you can find lots and lots of Tor base books in the various gaming auctions at your local um, uh, sci-fi and gaming uh, convention. Oh, I'm sure noblenight.com probably also has the Torg series. Right, but I'm just saying, though, if you want to, if you want to test it out cheaper, you know, I used to have a full set of them, you know, and I, I basically sold them online on eBay. And I know that every time I go to Gen Con, they have a huge auction there. But yeah. they also had a store where you could just put in your stuff to be sold for whatever price you set it at. And it was always amazing, you know, and, and there was a huge, just amazing what would show up there, you know. 
Uh, if it was really valuable, of course, it would go into auction, but you'd see things that you thought didn't exist anymore. And, they, and here it was, you know, books, supplements, uh, utilities of various kinds, you know, like some of those uh, uh, spinning uh, resolution things for Thaco uh, and stuff like that. They uh. had those. Yeah. I'm going to hand it back to you, Jonathan. What do you think is the best joke RPG? I've got to give it to Paranoia. Oh, God, yes. The dark humor of this utopian, well, dystopian attempt at a utopia, the fact that you're, you know, you're expected to die frequently and your clones are on standby ready to be just dropped in. Right. That your job is to eliminate mutants and uh, members of secret societies, and you are a mutant and a member of a secret society. You all are mutants and members of different different types of mutants and different types of secret societies. Yeah. The whole game was like just being thrown into a pit fight. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and the GM just sitting in there waiting for opportunities to just kill your character off for stupid reasons, especially stupid reasons. Oh yeah. Did you did you just question Mr. Happy Computer? Your computer's your friend. Did you just question computer? Oh, yeah. computer I, sure. So what did you think made um made it so so when I say joke, I'm actually talking about, you know, being humorous. And you, you, you picked up on it. I don't mean like a, a, a system that's awful. And uh, you know, and, and shouldn't and shouldn't be played. You know, uh, I'm actually talking about ones that are that are primarily, you know, you're supposed to be humorous in them. Why do you think that that this this particular game system so engendered humor? First off, it it kind of evokes that Big Brother vibe. Okay. Uh, back because uh, this was what was it like late '80s, early late '90s? 80s, yeah, yeah. It was like the second wave of RPGs that came out. I would say that that was about the time when we thought Big Brother was an impossibility the most. 1982 was was uh, was just passing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, ooh, okay, we dodged that bullet, and then, well, okay, we just missed it by maybe 20, 30 years. But anyway. Yeah. He was just off by a couple of decades. Speaking the wrong word to the wrong character was grounds for immediate termination and yeah. your next clone coming in. It, it was... It was a game that you knew that this was all about having fun, blowing stuff up, getting blown up, and going right back into it. Right, because you had six clones. Mm-hmm. Yep. So life was cheap, and and you you could you could do risky things, you know, um, and and try for the broad slapstick humor. And if it didn't work, oh well, just another clone down. Yep. Oh no, I remember uh, my one friend Erica ran Paranoia. I've actually played the game, and they had something called Bouncy Bubble Beverage. Basically, it was the drink that would accompany Soylent Green. <laughs> and I ended up drinking my own predecessor. Oh. So I'm sitting there looking Erica dead in her eye, in character, going, tastes familiar, but I can't place it. I stopped the game. Because <laughs> everybody is like, Robert, you a-hole. I'm like, hey, you're going to throw this at me. Badminton racket, return volley. Yeah. Uh, just <laughs> All right. But yeah, that was my memory of paranoia. I mean, I got to game with Eric Wujic at a gaming 
mini con at the lighthouse gaming center. And it's, it was made from an old lighthouse right on the Detroit river. And he ran sort of something like it called entropy, but it was kind of turned to 11. He threw elements of star Wars in, but it was pretty much still paranoia. You had six clones and just, yeah, you went in, you were trying to fight Vader and just, it was Eric Wujic. That's how he rolled. And just, yeah. So all right, I, I didn't last that long in that game. I, I, I got to find another game really quick, but no, Paranoia, I remember they tried to reboot it where it was the society, the computer finally crashed, so these clones had to survive in a computerless world. I don't know how well that that, that edition fared. I don't think it fared all that well. Okay. I know it's also getting turned into a um, computer RPG. Oh, no. Due out soon, actually, I think. Oh, okay. So is that your choice also, Trav? Oh, no, 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 no. And we're we're going to go to TriTech here. And, <clears throat> Bruce, you made a comment about it when we were on uh, All Games Considered. Murder Hoof. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just come on. I mean, it's Richard Deci- Richard DeHogan decided to turn the My Little Pony fandom on its ear by saying, yes. This, you know, this warp opens in Cleveland and here come the ponies and happiness and friendship are magic until you get really close to them and bypass the illusion field and find out that they are murderous centaur ponies and they want to eat you. And I mean, just the fact that because Bruce, you and I know Rich, just the whole My Little Pony thing, just, you know, he was uh, it was and, and I would never say anything about rich if you knew rich the hulk you know he really tried to be nice to everybody but this was rich's middle finger to the the pony fandom yeah i, I think he kind of he kind of despised the you know the, the whole the whole and the most ironic thing is is that john's a brony yes he's admitted it so yeah we oh no we had the discussions and i think some of them are on previous episodes but yeah just the fact that yeah, you think you're you're playing, yeah, My Little Pony, and you get to deal with humans, and all of a sudden you find out that they are murderous, murderous conquerors. And they're quite, they're different. Yeah, they look like the ponies until you get past this illusion field they have, which is also a force field, and you find out that they have more of a centaur body, and they are just diabolical. They are looking to conquer, and they will eat you. And of course, when we threw that at Amber Rose, she's just when I when I told Pip about this game, I haven't gotten stink eyes like that since my divorces. Just I'm going to put that out there. Just oh, it was oh, you you bring up murder hoof to a brony. Or what's, what is the other term that I have heard that yeah, it, it's a bit of an insult? A Pegasus sister? News to me. Well, yeah, it was even funny because I think Jess Hartley even brought that up and it was just like, no, no, stop, no. But yeah, just this game, when I saw on the outline joke game, I'm like, oh, murder hoof, hands down. But I do love Jonathan's answer, paranoia. That didn't even hit me. That came off on a totally, you came in out of left field with that one and got me with that one. But yeah, I'm still going to go with murder hoof. Okay, I, I have a totally different opinion. Okay. I think that probably one of the funniest games that are this intentionally funny is Munchkin Quest. Oh, the role-playing I... version of the card game. Oh, boy. yes, 
Yes, you're actually playing it like an RPG, but you have all the crazy gear that it, it, every one of which is like a joke. The flaming armor, the shirt gives you more armor class the more it rips. Okay, I this, <laughs> Bruce, for Munchkin Quest, have they started making other supplements based on the other Munchkin card supplements based on genre? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, with, with Munchkin, there is something here, and it's something that, um, for those of you older listeners, my the former guest, Eric the Enabler, his best friend, Joe Kassar, he put together Munchkin Foo and Munchkin Cthulhu. Now, Munchkin Cthulhu, you have the lacy black dress. If you have female players at the game, they have that card. It adds to their armor class. Then for Munchkin Foo, you had the additive card, dot, 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 of my grandfather. So if you put those two cards together, <laughs> you could have the lacy, black, the lacy black dress of my grandfather. <laughs> and Joe told me that, and I just looked at him, and I said, that grandfather must have come from a real progressive society, just saying. And so I was just wondering if Much Quest had that. I would be so into buying that game just because just to have that and play that, you know. It has a very, very simple game mechanic to it, and the cards change the rules. I mean, that that didn't exist until Magic, Trav. Yeah, yeah. They're the ones that introduced that mechanic. It's just Steve Jackson turned it on his ear, yeah. Right, right. And uh, so you, you had these really great abilities that would come by having these pieces of equipment, at the same, you know, at the same time, they were filled with in jokes. Oh yeah. Okay. Mm. You know, to me, you know, the fact that this is a game that was marketed to children, everybody thought it was a great game for children, and it has the knee pads of allure in it. Yeah. <laughs> to this day, it just boggles my mind. It's like you know, it, it had, it's the it's like the best movies where you know there's the jokes for the kids, but there's also the jokes that the parents get that the kids don't oh, even no, get. No, 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 that's just like how they wrote Animaniacs and Tiny Toons. Oh my gosh, Animaniacs is ongoing. That how did this get past the damn censors twenty years ago? You know, they basically show them like holding their hands over the ears and the eyes of the censors and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, but, but just you you watch the show twenty years later and you get. It, it was the multi-leveled writing of whoever Spielberg got to write, because he executive produced all those all those cartoons. But yeah, Munchkin, yeah, it was, it, it, as soon as I saw the neat pads of Valor, I'm like, this is not a kid's game. Come on now, I wouldn't let my daughter play this back then. Yes, you would have. Yeah, my daughter's 26. She probably, you know. No, you would have done it then because nobody understood. So, you know, like I said, kids didn't get it. And that's fine because they were running around with the Mazer. Mazer, Baser, Bo Baser, Banana, Fana, Bo Phaser. Don, Don, Love, Doom. Yeah. Which was a gun that essentially you could add cards to to make it more, give it more and more powers. Yeah. In later versions of the game, they they would, and I'm pretty sure that's also in Munchkin Quest, where you basically can you you not only have items, but you get to add additional features to your items. That was um the laser Star Munchkin. I should know this, considering Pixie's mother, Goth Bunny, is the. Self-declared, self-abdicated Munchkin Queen of Toledo. They had to make a card, and they wrote, you know, the blank cards. Simply, Colleen loses. 
I played Munchkin against Goth Bunny. It's time I can't get back because she spanked me at the game. It's frightening. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I remember seeing that at my local, my, my flags of Pandemonium Cards and Games over in Garden City, and I'm like, they turned Munchkin into a role-playing game. If my players didn't already make my game slapstick, as no matter how serious I try to make them, I would throw this in as a as a campaign option. We're playing Munchkin. Sure. Just using the items in the game in your regular campaign can do that. Oh, God. no, no, no. Just, well, I don't know. I might get Colleen back in my game. She's had to bow out of a couple of them. I said, I got Munchkin Quest. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I don't know. There was a, there was the long bow of ribbons, and it has all kinds of frilly ribbons all over. And it's like you know, it's it's it can only be used by elves, yeah, <laughs> because they're like you know, yeah, yeah, very very um, uh, aesthetic, yeah, in the game, mm -hmm. yeah. Anyways, um, and of course the dwarves are you know bricks, you know, yeah, can carry extra. So yeah, one of the items I always had like weird feelings about was the was the stepladder. The stepladder gave you a bonus. And I was like, how does this give you a bonus? You know, but <laughs> I think it only could be, I, I, I guess it's because it could only be used by halflings and they, they used it to get the, you know, to get the height bonus. Yeah, yeah. You just see this half, bringing the stepladder over to the monster, then running up to the top of the stepladder and fighting the monster. Just... <laughs> yes. Right, so that's my idea of the, the best joke okay. RPG. Okay. Well, ho, 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 Santa says, I've got lots of stuff to bring to those boys and girls. I sure hope that drive-thru RPG is open late. It has expedited shipping. Santa, it's all downloads. You can get them immediately. Oh, then let me get my list. Those little boys and girls had better put their email on their requests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They better be on the nice list, too, because you don't want to know what PDF's getting you down the naughty list. Yeah. Oh, no, no. You get on the naughty list, we're, we're going to send you, you know, human-occupied landfill. Oh, or... wow. <laughs> we hope you guys have are having a wonderful Christmas at this point. Like I said, you we hope you've had a wonderful Christmas, and we hope that you did get all the things that you were really hoping for. If you have any Christmas money... Maybe we've given you some ideas of things you want to spend it on. If so, let us know through our Facebook accounts, fans of uh, Gaming on the Frontier, and also on our Podbean site at tritechsystems.podbean.com. And uh, head over to iTunes and give us a review. And hopefully say we did an excellent job in five stars because that lets other people know about us. Uh, because it pops up to the, the top of their list for, us, for a little oh, while, yeah. and new people check us out. I'll praise the algorithm. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. we're going to gain the algorithm to death like everybody else. Since you are going to be hearing this before our 500 episode, we will be letting you know on the, the various things we have, there'll probably be some announcements going out on this feed uh, about whether or not we're going to be able to have a streaming 500th episode and if we are we hope you really will enjoy, uh, join us for that because then you know we'll all have a happy new year so merry christmas uh happy holidays for everybody yes we we are all inclusive here i mean if you know our podcast you know we're all inclusive on all the holidays so whatever you all may celebrate 
we wish you well. Uh, we wish you light, love, friends, family, cool gifts, great food, uh, travel safely. Because this is one of the busier, I mean, Thanksgiving weekend is the busiest travel weekend of the year, but a lot of people travel for the holiday. So travel safe if you're going somewhere, by all means. And just all of us here at Gaming in the Frontier wish you the happiest of holidays, what, however you may celebrate. Yep, no power outages. Oh, God, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Any, any wishes for you, Jonathan? I wish somebody would come over here and hang up my Christmas lights because I really don't want to do it. But it's <laughs> uh, on my honeydew list. <laughs> uh, Dude, I meant to do it yesterday. Set up but... a damn tree yet, man? He was supposed to do that last uh, week. I still got to do that too. Yeah, oh. get to oh, it. Oh boy! All right, thanks everybody, and we wish you all uh, happy holidays. And we will have more for you next week. But until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Have a Merry Christmas. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts, is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license, no commercial reproduction, and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.